Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Let me start with a question this morning. The question is simple. What's better, empty or full? Let me give you context, okay? Think about a phone battery. What's better, empty or full? Full. It's amazing the kind of anxiety that seeing your phone battery hit 10% induces on you. I mean, 20, 10 years ago, who would have thought what kind of life-crippling anxiety comes when you see 10% on your battery? Uh, tire pressure, empty or full? Full. I was in Broken Bow a couple of weeks ago with some friends, and their minivan tire uh, was dead flat, and I was like, got this, you know, super dad. And so I jerked it up, got the tire off, threw it off, got the spare on, put it on record time, lowered it down, and the spare was flat also. <laughs> like, there's nothing more frustrating in that moment, empty or full. Uh, how about this? How far typically will you go on your tank of gas before you pull over and, and fill it up again? Are, you, are any of you people who you're always kind of watching it, and when it gets to a quarter or an eighth of a tank, you go ahead and you just... You find, you pull over and get, you get aren't you so responsible? You're such good adults, you know. How many of you wait on the gas indicator light and, hang on, hang on, I'm not done. You wait on the light and when you see the light go off, the first thing you do immediately is you go, oh, okay, where's the gas station? The light, light's gone off now. Who's in that camp? Not many of you. So the next group of you, you see the light and you go, fair warning. I've got a little time. It's about 40 or 50 miles to go, two, two and a half gallons left. I'm not stopping now, but I'll get one soon. Who's in that camp? Okay, so the rest of you are the brave individuals in society, and the line between bravery and foolishness is very thin here, okay? And I fit in this camp, so I can say that. How many of you, you see the indicator lighting, like, eh, I mean... It'll be okay. And you keep driving until you start to see it hit two, three, four, five miles to empty. Who's, who's in that camp? Yeah. How many of you have hit zero miles to empty this month? Have you done that? I've done that this month. Frequently, I pull in like that. How many of you have run out of gas in your life? And how many of you have done it recently? Uh, okay. <laughs> What's better, empty or full? full, right? I ask this because in the psalm we'll look at this morning, there are different people in here who they're running on empty or low spiritually, and that's what we'll, we'll see today. Um, let me ask this, how many of you are Christians? Not everybody necessarily may be, but a lot of you are. Uh, empty or full, when you first trusted Jesus, was that a heart full moment or was it kind of a low spiritually empty moment? What was it? It was a full moment. It was the fullness of joy because Jesus did something for you that you could never have apart from Him. It was a moment where your heart received something that it had longed for longer than, than it, you had even realized that it had longed for. It was a heart full moment, a fullness of joy kind of moment. How many of you have always remained in the fullness of joy kind of moment. Like nothing gets you, even this morning you got up and you weren't fighting with your family, you weren't fighting with your demons. You woke up, you already had a song in your heart and you were leaping and ready together. And when people get in your way and try to put you down in life, you just smile and you sing a new song to the Lord. And you're always like that. And you're not faking it, you're not acting. How many of you are always fullness of joy? 
like one or two of you. And praise God for that. But probably, more likely, you relate to this experience. You love the Lord. You do. But your love has cooled off at times and in seasons. Like, that's something that, that we've all been there before. And, and when our spiritual gas tanks begin to get low, sometimes we need a, a warning to remind us that's what's going on in our life. And so that's what we'll look at this morning, what we'll talk about. What do you do when your spiritual gas tank begins to get a little low? Grab your Bible, turn to Psalm chapter 50. Psalm 50, it starts with a summons to all of the earth to come to God. The world to the ends of the earth is summoned to come to Zion. Zion is the place where God dwells with people, and because God dwells there, people are blessed, and the whole world is called to come before God, and He's going to begin to reveal to some people the true nature of their hearts, of their faith. He's going to lay it out before them, and the the world is going to hear it. I think it'll be helpful to us if you think about Psalm 50. It's going to be helpful as we get closer to the end if you'll think about it as a gas tank indicator light for your spiritual life because it's going to give us warnings and it's going to remind us that we need to pull over and to be filled back up. Here's verse 1. It's a beautiful verse. It says, the mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting And out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God in His holiness, in His righteousness, in His justice, in His goodness, in His perfection, in His love and glory has shone forth. Next verse, you get the sense that the people are beginning to anticipate that God is calling the ends of the earth together and He is going to to place judgment on all of the four nations who have rejected him, who have rejected God. They've gone their own way, and they have persecuted God's people because in verse 3, they say, may our God come and not keep silent. Fire devours before him, and it's very tempestuous around him. And so you get the sense that they anticipate God is coming, and we will be vindicated, and those who have rejected God, oh, they're going to get it. And that's not what happens in this psalm. When this psalm comes, God says, I'm here, ends of the earth come, but I'm here to talk to my people, and I want you all to witness. Verse 4, he summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. It's to those people I'm going to speak to. It's to my own people that I'm going to look into their hearts, their souls, and be honest about what is seen there. And I want you to to understand, frankly, this is what the prophets do all of the time. Prophets are always reminding the people of God that judgment starts there. It's what Peter picked up, and he talked about in the New Testament. He wrote to Christians saying in 1 Peter 4, for it is time for judgment to begin. Somebody say begin. It begins with the household of God. That's where judgment starts. We're so quick to look for God to judge everyone else, but the Bible seems over and over to declare that God starts with His people. And so now the people who were cheering them on saying, come on, God, you get the idea that maybe they're starting to be a little less excited about it because people don't want to be judged. And as I looked at this text, I already started getting uncomfortable this week. I was like, oh, I got to talk about judgment. No one wants to talk about judgment. Some of you are like, you better not be judging me, pastor. You know, we don't want to be judged. And probably some of that is rooted in fears that we have about not being good enough or not being accepted 
or, or being found out in hypocrisy that we've tried to hide in our life for a long time. We're afraid of being judged either because we think it won't be fair, like people don't know what I'm going through. How dare you judge me? I've seen your life, right? Or we're afraid that we'll be found out and that we'll be exposed. Maybe it's most frightening that we might be exposed to ourselves. But the truth is that we really can't function in this world if we don't have judgments in our lives. If we don't have somewhere or something along the way saying this is right and this is wrong and this is good and this is bad, this leads to life, this leads to death, this one helps and this one hurts. If we don't have judgments like that in our life and throughout our life, we would become stuck. We'd become just absolutely immobilized in arrested development. And the good news about God's judgment, this is really good to remember, is that God's judgment is not like our judgment. When people judge people, it is so often shallow and lacking in information, lacking in knowledge, lacking in perspective. It's superficial. But when God judges, it's rooted in His divine and holy character. Verse 6, the heavens declare His righteousness. It declares His righteousness for He, God Himself, is judge. His judgment is always full of justice. It's always full of rightness. It's never lacking in perspective. It's never lacking in information. He sees all things. He knows all things. And what's more, it's always fueled by steadfast love. Verse 7, He says, hear my people, I will speak, O Israel, I'm going to testify against you, I'm God. And then he reminds them, I'm your God, that's who I am. We have a special relationship and this is why I'm coming to talk to you now. So when people judge, it might not be fair, it might not be accurate, it might be flawed and it might not be motivated by love, but when God judges, it's full of justice, it's always right, it always is is spot on and it's motivated by his love for us. Psalm 94 talks about this. It says, blessed is the man whom you chasten. We don't like that word. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law that you might grant him relief in the days of of adversity. In, In other words, it's implying that if God doesn't chasten or discipline or judge us when we are in trouble, well, then we will be stuck in adversity. It is a relief from trouble for God to point out and say these things are wrong and these things are right. For the Lord will not abandon His people if He didn't bring judgment, if He didn't say this is wrong and this is right. It would be like Him leaving us to the brokenness of this world. But God doesn't abandon His people for judgment will again be righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. The author of Hebrews picks this up and he reassures Christians, not just Jews in the Old Testament, but he reassures Christians that God's judgment, his discipline is good. It's full of goodness. And it's even the kind of thing, it sounds so strange, but it's the kind of thing that we should learn to love and to desire in our life. It says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. And he's quoting bits of Psalms and Proverbs Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved or corrected by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. And then He adds verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. 
Or, or, or in other words, if not for God's discipline, you wouldn't make it through this life. It is God's correction and discipline that allows you to endure tough times and circumstances in this life. If God didn't help you to see what was hurtful and what was helpful, you might absolutely crash and burn all the time. But God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And it's a good metaphor because if we think about parenting, what parent, when they see a kid walking out into the street, doesn't call out, stop, (laughs) you know, and I'm going to prevent you from going in that way. And when kids grow up, as they become teenagers, and even kids who are young adults begin to make their own decisions in life, and we give them room to flex, we give them room to experiment, to learn, even learn from failure, learn from mistakes. But if a parent sees their kid of any age heading down a path of destruction that you know it's going to get them caught, they're going to get haunted, they're going to experience devastation in their life, or they're going to cause devastation in other people's lives, what parent doesn't speak up and say, my child, I love you, and I will fight at all times in all seasons for what is best for you, and so I've got to say this is a dangerous road that you're traveling down. Hebrews says that's how God speaks to his children. He says, my child, I discipline you because I love you and I want better for you. So pull back to to Psalm 50, another translation of verse 3. I like this translation. It says, our God approaches and he is not silent. Fire devours everything in his way and a great storm rages around him. He calls on the heavens above and the earth below to witness the judgment of his people. And judgment begins in verse 8. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. In other words, I'm not criticizing you because you're not sacrificing, or we'll translate it, you're not performing acts of worship. I'm not going to criticize you for not practicing spiritual disciplines because you're doing that. In fact, every time I turn around, you're bringing more sacrifices before God. It's not that I'm saying you haven't done it or it's been a long time since you've been here. What I'm saying is the the problem is you don't know why you're doing it. Your devotion is faithful, but it's only routine. These people were worshiping God out of habit, but not from the heart, right? Outwardly, they're doing all the things that God had called them to do. They're like performing in the way that God's people are supposed to perform. They're doing the actions, but inwardly, they're absolutely missing the love and the fellowship of the relationship that God has invited them into, and they've forgotten that that's the thing that God really wants. It's not the outward actions. It's the sincere hearts of faith that God most desires. And as I read that, I realize how, how absolutely relevant and true these essential core issues in the middle of this psalm are for us today, because I have to ask this question in my life routinely. Am I doing actions but really not understanding why I'm doing the things that I'm doing? Do I worship out of habit but without any heart? And who hadn't been in those shoes at some time or another in your life with Christ? We've all tasted or experienced moments where the, re- the spiritual life becomes like the cold religious life. We don't mean for it to be, but it just becomes a little emptier as we go along. Now, 
There's two kinds of people here in this psalm that are all a part of Israel. They're all a part of, of the people of God, the family of God. The first are this group who are worshiping habitually, but it's, it's heartless. It's habitual but heartless worship. Uh, there's gas in the tank spiritually, but they are slowly running out and beginning to run on fumes. They're people who have good intentions. They love the Lord. They really, really do but the love has cooled a little bit. They're like the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2 where they've left their first love. They still do this stuff. They still are there. They're still doing the church stuff. God says, you're still doing the church stuff. The problem is you don't know why you're doing it. It's all habit and and no heart. And he explains in verse 9. God says, I shall take no young bull out of your house nor male goats out of your folds for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you for the world is mine and everything it contains. Shall I eat these sacrifices you make of flesh, uh, bulls, or drink the blood of male goats? In other words... If it were even possible for God to come to a moment in in time that he had a need, which it's not, because everything that God has made, everything that you can see, hear, or smell, everything that has been on this earth was created by God, not because he had a lacking and a wanting and needed something to fulfill some emptiness or void in himself. No, God created out of the abundance and the overflow of his glory and his power and his goodness and his joy and his satisfaction. The Holy Trinity that has existed for all time was so full of joy and glory, it spilled out and God created. God has no needs, but if God had a need, he says, if it ever was even possible, I wouldn't come knocking on your door because everything, I made it, everything belongs to me. If I was hungry, I'd go and take what's mine, right? So here, God's emphasizing the things that he gives them and why he gives it to them. Clearly, there were some people here who thought the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was in some way, if I will sacrifice these things and bring these things before the Lord, I'm doing something for God. I'm doing him a favor. I'm doing something for him. When in reality, the Old Testament sacrificial system wasn't them doing something for him. It was God calling them to do something that was actually helpful for them. And in the sacrificing, what they were reminded of was forgiveness, their need of forgiveness. And they weren't truly getting the completion of forgiveness by making sacrifices, but every time they laid a sacrifice, the point was they would be reminded that they needed God's forgiveness, which is something that we very, very easily forget. And I think that you and I can miss the point of spiritual disciplines in our life really often. Like, why do we pray? Why is that such a a thing that we're supposed to do all the time? Be praying, be on your knees before the Lord. We sing songs about it. When I fight, I'll fight on my knees, right? Why do I need to pray all of the time? And why do we gather together as, as a church? Why is it so important? I don't want you to miss a Sunday. I want you to be here every week. Is it because I'm a legalist? Is God a legalist? Why is it important that we confess our sins to one another and lay them out before the Lord? Why do we fast? Why does God want us to give financially our money? Why are we to serve? Why are we to sing? Why are we to live our lives with purity in the way that we speak and with what we do with our minds and what we do with our our bodies? Is it because God wants us to do something for Him 
Is it because we have to meet some standard by our ability that would make him like us a little more? Is it to give us stuff to do so that we would not be bored or so that we wouldn't do dumb things? Is it just some way for God to have control over us? No, it's because we need. We have need. We need to pray so we will be reminded continually that God is real and he's near to us and he loves us and he wants relationship with us. We need to pray so that we realize we're not on our own when we're dealing with the things of this world, that we have a God who loves us, that we wouldn't grow distant and we wouldn't begin to despair. We pray to remind us that God is for us. We need to go to church so that we won't move deeper and deeper into isolation and be people who only live with a small circle and are only concerned with the things that are in that circle. We need to go to church so that we can be encouraged by the people of God. Our faith would be stirred up. Our hope would be encouraged that we would together push each other forward to live in the light of Christ and to carry his message into the world. We need to give Financially, not because God needs our money to accomplish His will. How silly. He's given us what we have anyways. He needs nothing from us to accomplish His will. Proof, Jesus on the cross. He needs nothing from us to accomplish His will. But we give. Why? Because we need to be reminded that we don't depend on dollars and cents. And life doesn't, isn't completely about the dollars and cents and what I have and what I want and what I don't have. And how am I going to get it? I give financially. Otherwise, I'm going to become a selfish person. And it may just be because I'm the most depraved person in the room. But, but I give because if I don't, what's going to happen? I'll always be thinking about me. It's the same reason I serve. Why do I need to live my life with purity Because if I don't walk in God's ways with the way I think and what I say and what I do with my body and what I do with my money, I will begin to walk in paths that lead to destruction. In some way, emotionally or physically, there's going to be brokenness. There's going to be consequences. There's going to be pain. It's going to happen in my life, and I may be sharing those consequences onto others. We do these things because we need, not because God needs So God says to these people who worship with habit but no heart, he says, you're doing the stuff. Like you're practicing the church stuff, but the problem is you don't know why you do it and you're missing the point. The point you're missing, you're taking all the stuff that I gave you, I asked of you, called you to so that you would have a taste of the fullness of my life in your life, but you've missed the point. And so what you have left is empty religion and empty religion leads you nowhere. In fact, it, it's not just that it doesn't help, it actually, it actually hurts. So what do you do when you find yourself in that place that these people have found themselves in? Where your spiritual gas tank is running low and running out and you realize you're doing the stuff, you're showing up, you know, you're putting in the time, you're writing the check, whatever the case is, but it's heartless. It's just stuff. Look at verse 15. God says to ask him for help. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I shall rescue you and you will honor me. God says, you find yourself running on low, call out to me, I will rescue you, right? 
I'll come back to that in a minute. There's a second group of people here. The first are people who worship out of habit, but it's heartless, habitual, heartless worship. These people, again, still the people of God. They're still Israel. They're still the Jews. They still are counted among the assembly and his family, but the psalmist calls them the wicked. And that's not fun to read. Look at verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose and evil and your tongue frames deceit. And he just goes on and on describing the kind of people who say, I'm God's people. And yet I, they totally reject God's words, Right? And really, all of the descriptions in, in verses 17 through 21 describes, it really, if you look at it, the Ten Commandments being broken at every turn. It describes the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus would give later when he was on earth being trampled all over. It's people who say that they're God's people, but they reject God's words. I mean, they believe that God is real. They believe that he's there. They see signs of his existence. They acknowledge him with their mouth. Yes, there's a God, but there's a whole group of people here who just don't care what God has to say they should do with their lives. It's like, God, it doesn't matter to me if you've given me instruction or direction. I'm going to live my life in the way that I want to live my life, and I'm going to speak in the way that I want to speak, and I'm going to spend money in the way that I want to spend money, and I'm going to do with my body what I want to do with my body, and it doesn't matter what you say. No one is going to tell me how I choose to live my life. It's my choice, and no one's going to judge me for it. I'm going to do what I want to do. If you look, the psalmist includes there are people who are consenting to the sins of others who are just going, you do you, man, that's cool. There are people who are participating in them. I'll do whatever I want to do. I'll do what pleases me. And there are people who are enjoying living this way. Verse 18 says they're pleased in rebelliousness. Their reputation out there is that they are God's followers, they're the people of God, but they're just nominally religious and they're wicked behaviorally. And I want you to be clear on this. These are people who are bloodline Jews. They are people who are counted among the assembly. They are people who are showing up at the temple. They are people who are making sacrifices, giving chance when people give chance, but they're people who have never devoted themselves to the Lord spiritually. And God is offended. He says, what right have you people to tell of my statutes and take my covenants in your mouth. How dare you? You don't mean a lick of it. The parallel today would be people who, who say they're Christians who've never had a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. They're people who, because I go to church and because I give in the plate, well, you know, I, I, I'm a Christian, yet I reject his leadership. I reject his lordship in my life completely. There are people who maybe their family was Christian. I grew up in a Christian family, so I'm a, I'm a Christian too. There are people who maybe have looked out at the landscape and said, there are certain marks of the Christian culture, or maybe even they've confused Christianity with power and politics and said, there's certain identifiers out in the world out there that I kind of lean into. So I'm going to say, I'm, I am a Christian, and yet they've never come to a moment in time well, they've stopped glorifying themselves or they've stopped pursuing answers for life on their own or they've stopped trying to prove themselves and they've said, what I need is Jesus Christ's salvation and life and I can't, I can't go another day without it. I no longer live but Christ 
lives in me. That's the modern parallel uh, of this. So here, verse 21, God says, these things you have done, and I kept silence. And it reminds me of the patience of God. It's talked about all throughout the scriptures, the kindness, the mercy, the the slow to wrath nature nature of God. Uh, Psalm 86 is a good example. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and in truth. The, the people that God is speaking to here likely are interpreting God's silence for his approval of their life. And I want you to hear that again because that's convicting to my heart. For any rebelliousness that remains in me, we should not be quick to interpret God's silence for his approval of all the things we're saying and doing in our lives. Because if we do that, we may begin to build up a false confidence in ourselves that we can go about sinning and interpreting the Bible however we want, however we please, whatever suits us best, and it not have consequences. And us not experience suffering because of walking outside of of the life, of the way of life that God has laid out for us, and that we may not cause suffering for others. We should not be quick to interpret a lack of God's condemnation in a given moment as His approval for the decisions that we're making. Look at the next part of verse 21. God says, you thought that I was just like you. I'll reprove you, I'll correct you, and I'll state the case in order before your eyes. One of the biggest mistakes that people, that we make, and I think one of the key reasons so many people have a problem with God and their view of God is that we have been so, so quick, we have such a tendency to think that God is just, it's kind of like us, like, I mean, a little better than us, you know, like an elevated human, slightly elevated human. That is what God is like. He has all of our faults, all of our errors, all of our tendencies. God is basically like me, but a little, a little better. It's a big mistake. God's going to correct them. The next couple of verses, <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know much of, of, of what to say, um, except that God's words make the heart tremble. And as I read them, I want you to remember that God does not love to punish. God loves his people. It's an urgent warning and a call to repentance. Verse 22, he takes no delight in punishment, but he says, now consider this, you who forget God. That's an interesting way of saying it because they still are presenting themselves at temple. They're still doing church stuff. They're still practicing spiritual disciplines. They're, they're still there when the temple doors are open, but their lives, their lives say that they have forgotten who God really is and what He is like. And this isn't just a, this is not right here in this section to people who just are, you know, they're going through a rough patch. They're just kind of struggling spiritually right now. They're, they're people who are devoted to God, but they've just cooled off a bit. This isn't to them. This is to the second group of people who use his name and say, yeah, I'm one of God's people, but they reject him outright in every way in their life. And here's what God says. Now consider this, or I will tear you in pieces and there will be none to deliver. For the record, I I don't even like reading it. And was this close to jumping to a different psalm so I wouldn't have to read it and talk to you about it. 
but I can't ignore it because it's there. So what do we do when we come to something in the Bible that, golly, I just, I don't even want to read that. I don't want to contemplate what that means. I don't want to have to talk about this. What do we do? If it's there, we don't reject it. We begin to work our way to seek understanding in it. So I, I thought, man, what, what should I do? I know what I'll do. I'll go to the message paraphrase because Peterson made everything sound so lovely in the message paraphrase. And a lot of times it's spot on. So I went to the message paraphrase and it says this, time's up for playing fast and loose with me, says the Lord. I'm ready to pass sentence and there's no help in sight. And you know, my goodness, it's much more palatable. That is, that's cool. But you and I can both tell that he's missed, the, missed the, the intensity here, hadn't he? He missed it. I mean, it's in the right direction, but he did not carry the tone or the, the gravity of the words the Lord had here. So I, I'm still wrestling with this. I'm going, Lord, maybe I just might change this psalm. And here we're getting later in the week. I'm going to do a different one. I told Patrick, hey, buddy, I know you're preaching in a couple weeks. So I'm going to take your psalm because I don't want to do mine and you can have mine. But I kept pressing and I kept asking the Lord for help. And, and as I was studying, I came across Charles Spurgeon's paraphrase of, of this verse. It says this, he wrote, lest I tear you in pieces, and it gives a metaphor, as the lion rends his prey and there be none to deliver, listen, no savior, no refuge, no hope, and boom, it helped. It helped me because so many of us got so stuck on the words, tear you in pieces, we didn't even get to the part where there's the hint, the message that there is a deliverer. There's a time where it might be too late for deliverance, but there is a deliverer. You worship God with your lips, but forget him with your life, ignore him, reject him with your life. God takes it seriously. How seriously? More seriously more seriously than most people would recognize. But here, this whole psalm has been a warning indicator light. The entire thing has been written from God to His covenant people to say, I want you to see the truth about your spiritual life and where your gas tank is so that you can receive help in the time of trouble. So first, He warns those people who are worshiping with, with habit but not with heart, and He says, you've got to be honest about where you are because it leads to empty religion where you're going, and that will lead you nowhere. It will lead you to death. And then he speaks to this second group of people. Remember, it's not a sin to be low. It's not a sin to be distant. But when we're low and distant for long, we might become people who become heartless, who have no heart for God, who have no understanding of God, who have no honest relationship with the Lord. And he moves into this second group of people, people who only embrace God's name, maybe as a sign of identity or as a sign of power or a sign of position in society, but they have no care for God at all. And it's a warning for those who have fooled themselves without ever having trusted the Lord honestly. For us, people who have fooled themselves by church attendance, without ever having come to Christ for life, for forgiveness, for salvation, and because there's no power and there's no life in empty religion, they really look more like the people in verses 17 through 21. It's a warning, but it's a warning with an opportunity. There's a reminder of one who will deliver us. And Romans 8 said, those who are in this deliverer, for them there is no condemnation for these. 
Verse 23, he's called the salvation of God. Verse 15, God promised, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will rescue you. And here in verse 23, you get his heart. His heart isn't for punishment. God doesn't love it. God says, he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright, I'll show him the salvation of God. Who's the deliverer? Who is the salvation of God for man and woman? He says, in the day of trouble, call upon me and I will rescue you. I'm just ready to. What is the means of God's rescue? In verse 23, he shows us his heart. He shows us the kind of relationship that he seeks to have with every man and every woman. He shows us what kind of worshiper is acceptable and right. And, And what he says points us ahead to the New Testament to a woman asking a question in Samaria at a well talking with Jesus about what kind of worshiper is God looking for. And Jesus said to her, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, well, I know the Messiah is coming, he who's called the Christ, and when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said, yeah, I've heard that too. I who is speaking am he. Cling to Jesus. Love Jesus with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. Love him more than everything else and experience life and rescue. Psalm 51, right after Psalm 50, Psalm 51 is written by David, and David comes to a moment where a warning indicator light has gone off in his life, and he's come face to face with his own sins, and in that moment, he writes a prayer, and his prayer says, restore to me the joy of your salvation, O Lord, sustain me with a willing spirit. God, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Many of us, when we see that our spiritual life is running on fumes or when we come face to face with our sin, we feel as though we have got to work it out. I have, by the strength of my might and the determination of my will, I've got to fix this issue in my life. I must fill my spiritual tank with more stuff, more spiritual activities, more sacrifices, more attendance. I'll write a bigger check. I will work out my repentance by the strength of my might. But the psalmist David says, no, Lord, I can't help myself. I will call upon you in the time of trouble and you, as you've promised, you'll rescue me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Sustain me, God. And Jesus, who is the way, he is the truth, he is life. He said, I have come and I have said these things to you that you would have my joy in your life and that your joy would be full. Cling to Jesus. It's a hard psalm to read if we miss the deliverer in it. If we miss the intent of God is to go to those he loves and say, don't continue to walk out into the street. It's dangerous there. Call to me. I will scoop you up and rescue you. Cling to Jesus. Let's pray. 
God, thank you that you have such care for your children that you don't leave us to walk in darkness and brokenness and that you won't tolerate heartless worship and you won't tolerate people saying, I belong to God, but living, rejecting everything about your word. It is for love. It is for mercy. It is out of overwhelming kindness you judge those and discipline those who you love and that's just hard for us in our humanity to accept it's almost too much to bear because we don't want to be judged but it is a grace that you would in patience continually once again and once again and once again point us to the path that leads to life And Jesus, that you would come. Rather than leaving us to walk like people who have no eyes, you would come and you would be a light. And you would enable us to see and you would enable us to rise and to walk in the newness of life and spirit. Thank you for helping us with hard texts in the Bible. Those that if not for your help could crush us, those that if, for, if not for your help, we might just totally miss the point. But you show us, even in a text that's about judgment, it has the line tear into pieces in it. My goodness. You teach us the intent of the word is to call those you love to a deliverer. Help us to hold tight. Restore to us the joy of our salvation and sustain us with a willing spirit by your power for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.